Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word from the book of Romans, Romans 12. We're still in our series on on the edge of grace, and we're looking at this uh, magnificent series of chapters that talk about lives transformed by grace, even unexpected ways. And now we're in Romans 12, where it lays out what that looks like in daily living uh, in a series of commands and exhortations from Scripture. Listen to the Word of God coming from Uh, The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9, Paul says these amazing things. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And to the contrary, if an enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Grass withers, flowers fade, but the inerrant word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. So we live in a culture that talks a lot about love. And we say, say it a lot in our words as well as our songs in a great many places. But sometimes we have to admit, don't we all talk a good game, but actually hold back when it comes to playing the game? Especially in some real life circumstances, real challenges of life. Take, for example, the story of 44-year-old Dr. Martin Salia. Salia worked in Sierra Leone with Ebola patients over the last nine months to a year, helping them to uh, try and heal them from this terrible disease. This fall, Dr. Martin Salia was diagnosed with Ebola himself. As a result, he was flown to Omaha, Nebraska for care, and he was so ill that he couldn't even walk on his own power. Salia worked as a general surgeon at Kissy United Methodist Hospital in Freetown, the capital of Sierra Leone. Uh, Even though he was a permanent resident in the United States and yet a citizen of Sierra Leone, people were curious about why he would go to Africa and work in the midst of this uh, squalor and difficulty versus staying in the comfort of the states where he is a permanent resident in Maryland. He was asked this past April, and and this is what he said about serving the Ebola patients 
even at the risk of infection himself. He said, I quote, I knew it wasn't going to be rosy, but I firmly believe God wanted me to do it. I knew deep within myself there was something inside of me that people of this part of Freetown needed help. I firmly believe God brought me here to fix whatever comes my way, unquote. Dr. Martin Salia died earlier this month in Omaha, Nebraska due to complications from Ebola. It was too late to address his symptoms and his disease. But I want you to hear what he said. Something deep in Martin Salia pressed him to serve those people. Shouldn't we call that love? And when it comes to loving... Most of us are prone to talking a good game. But some, like Dr. Martin Salier, are actually willing to play the game. Because deep inside, God is calling them to love in critical moments of life. And that brings us to the question today, what does love look like in a distinctly Christian sense in all kinds of circumstances in life, even the most difficult ones. What does love look like even in circumstances where it's way more than talk? It's actually playing the game and doing the thing that God called us to do in Christ. Well, Romans 12 lays out what love, deep love, looks like in various circumstances in verses 9 through 21. In these verses, Paul has laid out that all Christians are called to a life of love as living sacrifices. You might remember that from the very beginning part of this chapter. And now he lays out what that looks like in 31 commands for deep love. And no, I'm not going to go through every single one of those 31 commands for those who are wondering. But in these 31 commands, we will find an unexpected series of themes in how we love in various circumstances, even the most challenging ones. And since we have 31 commands, that covers a lot. I'm going to narrow these down to just five contexts, five contexts that cover real-life circumstances, real-life contexts where loving presents a unique challenge. And so Paul starts out with the first context of loving in verse 9 with our text with the number one ruling command of Scripture, uh, even in the great commandment in verse 9 of our text. This is what it says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Paul begins this long sequence of commands with the ruling command, Uh, The command to love, and I might even add, love in the face of good and of evil. Paul begins with the whole section, this whole section, with the cardinal virtue of the Christian faith. And this should be no surprise because Paul uh, starts where Jesus started. uh, with, With what is supposed to be our ultimate response to God as our God Remember when Jesus was asked in Matthew 22, what's the most important thing, basically, I can do for God? 
he responded by saying, the most important thing we could do is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second commandment is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, this sums up the whole of the law and the prophets. The implication of summary being in the law and the prophets, this is what God's word says is love. This is what love is defined with according to God. Well, Jesus apparently, when he said this, wanted us to love with all we've got. Did you hear that? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And that derivatively even goes to other people. All we have, that's what we're called to bring to the table. A fullness of who we are, not just in thought, not just in emotion, not just in action, but all of it put together, integrated. Jesus further expanded on this integration of love in a, a several corollaries. And the one that stands out the most comes in Matthew 7, where Jesus tells us that we're not only to love God, but love others. And more specifically, he says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, this is very contrary from the way our families sometimes work, as well as especially the business world. And this is what it says culturally very often. It says, do unto others as they do unto you. That's the standard of the world, the unspoken standard, which so many usually turn to. But Jesus turns it around and says, hey, if you want to, uh, here's how you uh, do unto others, you do to them as you would want them to do to you. Paul elaborates further on these extraordinary ideas of loving in our text when he says love must be genuine. He qualifies it. And the word here for genuine means uh, uh, authentic, through and through. It is not pretentious, not hypocritical. The hip hypocrisy would be the opposite of genuine. In other words, whenever we love, we're not to play act. But we are to love with a real deep love that comes from the inside out. An authentic, pure love where we bring all of ourselves to it. This is the kind of love that is revealed in most intimate relationships. <laughs> uh, marriage in particular has a unique flavor to it in our lives, even as Christians, where our love and really often the shallowness of it is revealed as we go through the ups and downs. As I've told you before, one of my best friends, um, uh, Tom Hawks, regularly says that marriage is a source of sanctification in our lives. It reveals us even in places we need to grow because very often you can only play act so long in close relationships and close friendships even in marriage, you can only do it for so long. Eventually, the depth or lack thereof of our love is revealed there. But Jesus is very different in his love. In John chapter 8, Jesus does a curious thing in that, in that chapter of the Gospels. A woman's brought to him, and, and she's brought to him uh, being accused of carrying out adultery, of being caught in the act of adultery, with another man in Jewish culture. Now, in that culture, you have to remember uh, that the law dictated that such a woman had to be stoned to death. The leaders who brought her to Jesus and were questioning Jesus about what they should do 
were ready to pull the trigger, had the stones in their hand, were just about ready to take her life. But Jesus wasn't so quick to judge. No doubt this adulterous woman probably had done some serious damage in the community with some marriages. And he certainly wouldn't have minimized that. However, he said those famous words to those who were bloodthirsty for her life. He said, let the one who has not sinned cast the first stone. And all of the Jews slowly left. Jesus, left alone with a woman, according to the text, asked her if anyone was left to condemn her. And she said, no, they were all gone. And as a result, he told her that he neither condemned her to go and sin no more. Jesus was under pressure at that point to work and to judge according to the cultural standards of the time. But Jesus saw in the woman and was revealed in that pressure-packed moment to see this woman as more than a lawbreaker. He saw her as a broken sinner, as someone who needed grace, who had brokenness in a story, who had brokenness in her life, and who needed a fresh new start through the forgiveness of her sins. He saw a story of redemption in the making. He loved her. And as a result, her life was changed. She was saved. This is genuine love. It's a love that doesn't enable, enable evil or sin, but also holds fast to what is good, even the good of redemption for broken people. You and I are going to be faced with more and more challenges to discern between good and evil. And even our own brokenness will come out in times. And how does Jesus treat us in those times? He leans in and loves with redemption of our lives in the face of those moments. Love must be genuine. It must be deep. And the only way you can taste deep love is to be redeemed yourself. That brings us to the second context for living out deep love that is genuine, especially in the context of church with fellow Christians in verses 10 through 11. Look at this. He says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. What is Paul talking about here? Well, this set of verses seems to allude to loving fellow Christians. What highlights that is that one anothering that goes throughout Scripture, or particularly the New Testament, talking about life in church with fellow Christians. Remember, Jesus told the believers in his ministry that the other great corollary of the great commandment, that he says to love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Jesus' love is our model of how we engage one another. Jesus calls us to imitate him in our loving engagement with each other. What does that look like? Well, loving each other with brotherly affection. Whew, now that's a tough one. Brotherly affection here, that Philadelphia language that comes in this text, uh, is, the, is the sense that we love uh, with our hearts, with our passion, with an engagement with people. We love people as if we're committed to them. 
That's the key thing here is the idea of family. Brotherly affection is you and I are family as Christians in Christ. We didn't put each other together, but Jesus did. And as a result, we are committed to each other come hell or high water. We are going to be engaged with one another and love each other in every circumstance because God has put us together even to eternity. That's the vision of brotherly affection is we're in this together. You and me, all of us, to the very end in heaven. Not only that, he says we're to outdo one another in honor. Now, why does he bring up honor? Because usually when you're in community together, it's very easy in a tight-knit spiritual community like church to have things like disappointment turn into contempt, turn into judgmentalism. We all start pointing the finger at each other. The opposite of contempt, however, is honor. Where we look at one another in the glory that God is doing, even the redemption, and while we don't honor the sin in each other's lives, we still honor the dignity of one another as children of God, born of Him. So in other words, when we're called to humble ourselves in the first part of this chapter... The constructive, positive, proactive command is honor, respect. Lift up your brother in their dignity. Finally, G, uh, uh, Paul it tells us to go to another place even better. Is he says, uh, he gets really radical and says, Do not be slothful, but be fervent in the Spirit. And I think it's the Spirit as in the Holy Spirit here, rather than the zeal of human zeal. And, in other words, be on fire for the Lord and for his people and do it in the power of the spirit. And he says, do it in the power of spirit because too many times people in America live out of sentimentalism. Sentimentalism is num is the number one American counterfeit to Christian love. And it goes like this. I'm satisfied with feeling loving things about you, but I may not do anything about it. That's why Paul says, serve the Lord. Act on the love and the brotherly affection, the fire in your heart for Christ by serving Jesus in your brother's life, in your sister's life. Don't just talk or feel about it. Do something in the name of Jesus. This, of course, reminds us of Christ's ministry. Most of his three years in ministry, his disciples were biting at the bit. They wanted... To have power along with Jesus whenever he would come into his glorious and they thought political kingdom. But Jesus does a shocking thing in John 13. They were living in a sentimental idea of what the kingdom would be. But Jesus shows them what real kingdom life is. In John 13, he sits them down one night and he shows them the deep love of God. Like the lowliest of servants... In first century Judean culture, he washes their feet. The Lord of the universe who created black holes, the Lord who created string theory, the Lord who created DNA, the master of history who oversaw the rise and fall of Israel, the rise and fall of Babylon, Dare I say the rise and fall of Nazi Germany, the rise and fall of Saddam Hussein, that same Lord was washing feet. 
It's mind-blowing. The implications of what he's showing and what real love in Christian community looks like. We in America are used to going up the ladder of power. Jesus keeps calling, especially leaders in his church, but all Christians, down the ladder to servanthood. This is deep. This is honoring love for fellow Christians and even for Jesus. Paul's not done. He tells us yet a third area where we are to learn love and carry out our love as Christians in this weird countercultural way. And it's under duress in verses 12 and 15. Look at this with me. Under duress, he says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Paul speaks in the language of tribulation here. He even talks in the language of people in need, contribute to the needs of the saints. He also talks about people in pain just a few verses down when he talks about weeping with those who weep. And he's saying this as a way to say we are called to live out love whether we're in pain or others are in pain. Now, this is very contrary to what we're used to in American life. What's our tendency? When we get in pain, we tend to withdraw, right? I'm going to stop engaging people and take care of me. Now, let me stop for a second. There's a place for that. You need to do that. We need to take care of ourselves. That's an important piece and a good word for folks like me who don't take care of ourselves very well. However, there is this call to keep engaging in a giving love, even when in pain. And he says the way to do this is to rejoice in hope. That we have a joy as Christians, not in circumstance, but in the hope of who our God is and what he has done and will do in history for us. The great news of the gospel is that our hope is that God redeems in this side of eternity. And ultimately, when Jesus comes back for an eternal new heavens and new earth, I mean, Jesus is in the business of saving all the time. Are you in trouble now? You need salvation. You need redemption. You need deliverance. Jesus is able. That is our hope. Now, granted, when you're in the business of hoping and learning to hope and even to have joy in that, uh, the real art is learning how to wait on the Lord. That's why he says be patient in tribulation. That word for patient is the word for endure. That you... Tough it out for a season. Yeah, grin and bear it sometimes. But as Christians, our grin and bear it goes like this. It's not, I'm really mad you're not showing up, God. It's, this is hard, Lord. Ouch. And I look forward to your redemption. And I look forward to worshiping you when you redeem in your unique way. And because I look forward to that grand day that ultimately will come when Jesus returns, I can get happy now. That's the art of hoping, even in duress. The beauty of this is that we're to do this even when we're in pain. Jesus calls us to love when we're in pain, even with giving to other people. 
Now, sometimes when you're in pain, you need to work on your pain. You need to work on the hardship, the pain you're going through, whatever that is. But I encourage you, think about how you can get outside of yourself and give to others as a part of that process. Think about Christ. When he engaged people, did he lament the pain he was going on? I mean, he was being oppressed. He was being criticized constantly, publicly, behind the scenes. I mean, even his own disciples were giving him a hard time. And at some point you'd think, Jesus would go, will you all just leave me alone? But he doesn't do that. And he doesn't do that with me and you. Actually, Jesus does a surprising thing. He engages. Think of the story of Lazarus. Remember when Lazarus died in John chapter 11? Uh, the, the brother of um, Mary and Martha. And Jesus goes to Bethany where they lived. And he visits them. And, you know, the people are weeping. They're, they're really just losing it. And Jesus could have announced in some extraordinary way, hey, don't you all worry, I'm going to resurrect them. Just chill out, what's wrong with you? Hey, uh, uh, don't forget Romans 8, 28. Uh, God works all things out for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. No, he doesn't do that. The surprising thing is he starts in the shortest uh, verse in the Bible, weeping with them. Have you thought of that? The Christ who is about to resurrect Lazarus weeps with the people. Have you ever thought of that, that he weeps with you? And he weeps with you because he laments in the midst of pain with you, knowing full well how he's going to redeem, even resurrect your circumstances. That's the kind of Christ we serve. He leans into the duress with us and calls us to a deep kind of love with him. Fourth context for loving comes in verses 16 through 18. This is a deep love in personal conflict. In personal conflict. Verse 16 says this, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. And if you jump down to verse 18, it says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. This is another surprising piece of learning how to love because when it comes to relationship, talk is cheap. Where the rubber hits the road is when a believer faces a conflict with an unbeliever or even a fellow believer. We are revealed in conflicts. Every time you go through a conflict, that is an opportunity, a providential opportunity to trust in Christ, to need the Lord, to follow Christ. It is not a time to run. One of the guys that we like uh, listening to at Redeemer uh, or uh, reading about is a guy named uh, Ken Sandy who wrote a book called The Peacemaker. And in The Peacemaker, Ken says that really you can narrow most people's way of handling conflict down to two things. You're either a peace faker or a peace breaker. Peace fakers are like this. La, 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 la. I'm not in a conflict. I'm not hurt. I didn't hurt somebody. What are you talking about? It's not an issue. That's peace fakers. That's my personal favorite. <laughs> peace breakers would go like this. You hurt me, I'm taking you down. Oh, and you may not think 
that you actually would say things like that. But don't we have those thoughts in our hearts? Man, that hurt. I want them to hurt too. Paul is saying we are called to pursue a life of peace. Of actually engaging people, even in the midst of conflicts, so that we might be at peace with them. So that we get away from peace faking as well as peace breaking and get into peace making through Christ. Now, I admit to you, this is a very abnormal thing, even in a Christian community. Because most of us want in Christian community all of us to be happy, engage each other. But I got to tell you, when Christians get closer, more intimate, there are more and more conflicts over vision, over this, over that. It's going to happen question is, how will you pursue it? How will you handle it? Jesus tells us in Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, if somebody genuinely hurts you by sinning against you, you know what you're supposed to do? You go to them and resolve and initiate resolving the difference. You do it humbly, you do it lovingly, but with a goal of restoration and reconciliation, but you go. Matthew 5, Jesus says another thing. If you're at worship and you're offering your gift to the Lord and you realize, hey, so-and-so has something against me. I've offended them. I haven't handled them well. You know what he says? Leave your gift there and go and be reconciled to your brother. Go to them. What's the common denominator here? In both cases, whether you're offended by someone's sin or you've offended someone in sin, you go. Imagine an entire body pursuing each other reconciling when we have sinned against each other. It, it, it is phenomenal stuff when it occurs. I don't like doing it. It's always hard for me as my feet peace-faking ways, but every time I engage someone, whether I've blown it with them or the other way with me, it is beautiful how Jesus shows up in those moments. And that's because Jesus is a reconciling Lord. It's what he is about. Now, an interesting thing in this text that we don't have a ton of time to go into is he talks about uh, this whole idea of do not be haughty but associate with the lowly the and do not be conceited. The implication being that even in a Christian community, even with other people outside of the community, it's very easy to get self-righteous about a certain thing in our lives. In fact, self-righteousness is ingrained in our souls we can get self-righteous about anything. And the result is sometimes we get arrogant about it. Sometimes we get so arrogant that we press those who are less than us in some perceived way down. That shows up in cases of race. My race is better than your race. In some cases it comes in socioeconomic or even educational class. My status is better than your status. It comes up in things like generations or, or ages. My generation's better than your generation. Jesus calls us to break free of those conflict-causing uh, elitisms and to pursue reconciliation, to run from alienating each other to embracing each other in harmony and in peace, in the peace of Christ. It's Jesus who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. It's Jesus who looked at an offending Peter who got 
who got an elitist attitude with him and said, when Jesus said, hey, all you guys are going to diss me, Peter stood and said, I'm not going to do it. All these losers, they will, not me. And Jesus stares right at him and says, by the end of this night, three times you're going to deny me. Sure enough, he falls. Now, how does Jesus treat him after that? He said, you dissed me, you did me wrong, you're out of here. No. He initiated grace at the cross, forgiving him. He even, after the resurrection, met with Peter and three times asked him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Clearly lining up his call to follow again in, with, uh, with Peter's three denials. Jesus is about forgiveness and reconciliation with all of us. Let's be honest. Loving in the midst of conflict is hard. It's real hard. Feelings of hurt can be intent, intense, but Jesus is calling us to do the countercultural thing, to actually move trusting him in a relationship by pursuing biblical peace. Last context that Paul brings up in our text is, uh, is one that elicits a lot of fear in us. And that is when people give us hostile responses to our faith. In verses um, uh, 19, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Sometimes when we follow Jesus, people will push in and resist us. I remember working in the workplace in New England, and... Um, there was a vice president of our company. I had a real good, actually, relationship with him. But one time, he openly talked to me about my Christian faith, the fact I was going to seminary and why I would even think about following Jesus. And he mocked me to my face multiple times for my faith. It's hard when it's coming from a boss. Nonetheless, that is a moment where you're called to a different kind of love. Because you know that the fleshy tendency is to say, I want to get back at him. You think, you think you're going to take me on? Come on, let's go. That would be the Faulkner street fighter in me. Instead, we're to be countercultural. Even as uh, Paul tells us these extraordinary things, Christian love gets crazy when people are resistant to us because we follow Jesus. We actually don't carry out justice. We wait on the justice of the Lord. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. This is talking about personal uh, vindication, personal conflict. It's not talking about civil government and how you run the civil government. That's a different thing. Nonetheless, Paul is teaching us, if you will, personal pacifism. Let me be clear. I'm not, let's not say we don't use boundaries. We don't also take care of ourselves when people are consistently violent with us. But it is to say, we are to look for creative ways to love our enemy, just as Jesus taught us to. To love him proactively and give him the opposite of what he deserves. Look at this, it says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heat burning coals on his head. When somebody attacks you, you know your first response will be protection, fight back. Well, pray to the Lord 
and pray through ways that you can actually bless them, not curse them. Well, that's crazy stuff, right? I mean, crazy. But that's Christian love. It is radically different than anything we've encountered in our lives. And the reason why we promote this is this is exactly what Jesus did for you and for me. He died for enemies to make them children, friends. He leaned in and blessed us in our sinful rebellion against him at the cross. He bled and died and at the cross says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It's just not what people normally say. This is a call. To consider how to love your enemy in a way that still brings honor to Jesus Christ. Don't miss the final gospel point of our text today, though. And it comes in this last verse. It says, it really sums up well all that's been said here. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We're called to a life of living for good. Good works, good actions, good attitudes, good thoughts, if you will, that are based in Scripture. And when presented with evil, we present a holy and good action in a loving and good work. This is only possible, any of this, if you have been loved by Jesus. This is only possible if you have been personally met with the cross of Christ. You can't love like this. I can't love like this. Unless you get what Jesus did at the cross for you. You can't love like this until you realize that Jesus Christ himself did every one of these commands. And live the righteous life that we could never live. He got it right every time. You will never love like this until you realize that Christ overcame death as the final penalty with his resurrection. Jesus was resurrected to overcome and show that life is possible even out of death. These 31 commands are for you and for me. They call us to a different kind of love. If you pursue them, you will be changed. In conclusion, this past weekend I was up with family up in uh, Williamsburg, Virginia, with uh, family uh, celebrating Thanksgiving, I was talking to one of my uh, uh, family members up there, and uh, we were talking a little bit about how my uh, this person was talking about how they had heard a talk uh, at a at a breakfast. It was a Christian talk on overcoming, and uh, he was really encouraged about the whole overcoming thing. But I know that this person in my family is not a Christian. And so I told him the thing that really matters is that while it is great that we're called to seek to overcome, the first thing that really has to happen is that we must be overcome. We must be conquered 
by the love of God in Christ. We must receive that love for it to make any difference in how we love other people. So if you want to love meaningfully in your marriage, in your friendships, in your, in your workplace, if you want to love and it feels so mysterious and hard to you, stop. Let Christ meet you first. Then go and love well with a deep love that came from Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you now and we admit that loving and this business loving seems mysterious to us at times. And we read this text and we know this is mind-boggling stuff we're just not used to. But we pray today that you would overcome us. You would conquer our hearts. You would tame our souls with your love, Jesus. And as we come to the table, what better place do we have than to stop and consider the cross and how, Jesus, you have given so generously of yourself in love to us there. Lord Jesus, we want to be a loving congregation, but we know this is not always easy to do this in our families, with our friendships, even amidst each other. Tame our hearts, conquer us, that we might be lovers just like you. In Christ we pray. Amen.